There's this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote that says, Fiction reveals truth that reality obscures. Kind of a reverse of Mark Twain's famous quote, Truth is stranger than fiction. It's a cool quote, and it was also the inspiration for the name of Jonathan Mitchell's podcast, The Truth. The Truth is an anthology fiction podcast. Every episode is a different story. They're full cast. They sound rich. It's hard to describe the content because it's, it's, it's so varied. It's like a box of chocolates where each chocolate is a story. Next, Jonathan takes us behind the scenes of The Truth, an award-winning show that first launched more than a decade ago. My name is Stuart, and this is Audience, a Castos original series, where we go behind the scenes of some of the world's best podcasts to uncover their creative process. Just a quick note before we get to the creative stuff. Creativity is the most important part of the process, and without it, your podcast probably won't get very far. But you also need a support system, aka money. We can help you there. Castos lets you monetize all of your episodes, even the old ones, with a press of a button. There's no chasing sponsors, no extra editing work, none of the headache. You can even tap into your support network. Let your audience directly support your podcast through one time or recurring donations with Castos Commerce. If you want more information, check out the links in the show notes. Okay, let's get back into it. So we're doing very, um, what I think of as very traditional sort of Aristotelian stories. I asked Jonathan, the creator and producer of The Truth, what makes a good story, since he's produced more than 100 episodes of audio fiction. They, they have a beginning, middle, and end. They have a protagonist. The protagonist has an intention and an obstacle. That's what I look for in a story. I look for an interesting premise that feels like it has meat and stuff to think about. And it's thematically rich and uh, has a great setting where I, it's going to sound cool and um, has a central conflict, like an inciting incident, uh, a, an intention met with an obstacle that is compelling and suggests lots of places to go from there. For more than a decade, Jonathan worked with hundreds of collaborators, writers, actors, editors, all kinds of people to create these stories, which run the gamut from funny to surreal to sci-fi to sad to bizarre to mundane and really everything in between. The series first kicked off in 2012 with an episode called Moon Graffiti, which imagined an alternate reality where the Apollo 11 mission to the moon was not successful. Forward, kicking up some I dust. I still can't see, can't we're see the ground. It, we're going to tap it light. I'm going to Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. Complete with a dramatized reading from an actual speech President Nixon would have read if things had gone sideways, the episode takes us to the moon as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin grapple with their alternate fate. Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin know that there is no hope for their recovery. But they also know that there is hope for mankind in their sacrifice. When I, when I was doing that, when I think I was thinking a lot about 2001 A Space Odyssey, the scene where they find the, um, 
monolith on the moon. I really like those sort of like ligety inspired sound mass elements. They're very, you know, it's like where you hear like just a cluster of, of frequencies that are sustained. And I really like that sound a lot. I also saw around that time a, a movie called Marooned, which which is forgotten film, but Gene Hackman's in it and Richard Crenna. It's about these, it's a sort of a similar plot where these um, astronauts are stranded orbiting the Earth. Sort of a space race. It was released in the 60s, you know, it was a very space race inspired film. So I listened to that and, and listened to how they were scoring it. And I wanted it to feel like that era as well. And also, you know, I wanted the the sound design, the ambiance to reflect the the topography of the moon and the feeling of being alone and isolated and surrounded by darkness and and gray. But also at the same time, I wanted it to uh, suggest their movement in the atmosphere, in in this world and environment and suggest their feelings about it and the the kind of activity they were taking place in. So um, it was a lot of things. I mean, sort of following the story and listening to how the actors perform it and trying to get the actors to perform it in a certain way. Like another thing I was doing was I was trying to get the um, actors to perform in a very naturalistic tone, you know, so like a lot of the technical stuff um, I wrote, wrote out for them. We we're doing a lot of improv, but but at the same time, but I wrote a lot of stuff out so that they could just sort of rattle these numbers off. And this jargon I, I took from transcripts of the actual moon missions. And um, so, it, you know, it sound authentic. You ready? I can see my reflection in your visor. Here we go. I want to capture the spirit of the American astronaut stuck on the moon, two hours to live. It gives a big thumbs up. I hope this film can last a long time. I don't think it's going to be developed anytime soon. Now, Apollo 12 is going to go up? Yeah, after this, I'd be surprised if there's any space program at all. Jonathan began working in radio back in the 90s and eventually began producing for shows like Radio Lab, This American Life, and Planet Money, just to name a few. But his love for fiction dates back to his college days when he made an audio drama for his master's thesis. Well, it's called The Trouble with Key of G, and it was used recordings of my grandfather that from a cassette tape he had made to me as a child, and then scenes with actors playing out this sort of love triangle story. How do I put it? It was like a kitchen sink type of piece. I, I threw everything in there that I could think of, you know, because I was learning about all kinds of stuff and I was very excited about all these things I was learning. And so I wanted to figure out, you know, like each scene was a different sort of, sort of like a study in how I might apply this compositional technique to a narrative. So, for example, one of the scenes took place in a kitchen and I wanted the feeling that the walls were closing in on the characters, you know, it was becoming a suffocating environment. And at the same time, I was learning about this piece by Alvin Lussier called I'm Sitting in a Room, in which he records himself talking in a room, and he says this prepared text. And then he takes that recording, and he plays it back in the same room. And then he does that, takes that recording and plays that recording back in the same room. And he does that for multiple generations. So, the you know, at, at the, the more generations he does this, the more prominent the resonant frequencies of the room become and the less prominent his speech becomes. So after many, many generations of this, you just, you just hear wah, 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 wah. But the frequencies of that sound 
are the room. And so his, his, his voice is activating the, the, the resonant frequencies of the room. And I thought that was a really beautiful idea. And I thought, well, it would be interesting if I took that idea and instead of doing it like you're hearing the sequence of recordings, you'd be, we could um, have the scene playing and then gradually fade in the resonant frequencies of the room they're in and gradually fade out the dialogue from the scene. So by the end of the scene, all you're left with is wah, 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 wah. And so that, that was, you know, one of the scenes I did. So I usually the scenes had like some kind of compositional sort of avant-garde inspired compositional technique that I was applying. So after various stops in public radio, he began producing The Truth in late 2011, enlisting a team of writers and actors to create stories while handling all of the sound design and post-production himself. Much like his thesis, he also borrowed from his college days and his skills as a composer to help bring the truth to life. When I was in school, there was a, um, a composer I learned about named Edgar Varez, who liked to define music as being organized sound. And that definition really resonated with me. Any sounds you were organizing, that could be thought of as music. Like there's a very liberal definition of it, but it also encompasses everything that you know, all these different composers were doing in the 20th century, which was very varied. And it, inc- it includes speech. And I always thought, well, radio could be thought of as a musical medium. You could think of just a conversation as music, you know, with those, with that definition. And so uh, I, when I started working in radio, I, I was like, I want to think of these radio pieces as, as pieces of music primarily and see what, what happens as a result. And so as soon as you start thinking like that, it opens up all kinds of possibilities, you know, like, um, you know, the rhythm and the pitch of the, of the speech. You know, speech is so colorful. It's so varied. You have consonants and you have vowels and you have, you know, noise bursts and you, but you have these pitched sounds and, and it has this life to it. It's, you know, you can tell it's a human being, even when you distort the heck out of it. And, and make it completely unrecognizable what they're saying, you still know there's a human being that you're hearing. Like speech through a ring modulator, for example, still has that human quality. And so when I'm doing these radio pieces, I, I think, I think like, for example, when I put a piece of music, if I go and find a piece of production music and I put it underneath someone talking in a radio piece, I think of that as you're creating a new piece of music. Like, it's like rap, you know, how, how in hip hop they will take a beat from someplace else, they'll loop it, and then they'll start you know, rapping over it. Radio pieces are exactly the same thing. It's just instead of rapping, you're just you know, talking or you're using interviews or something. But you're putting speech over music that has a rhythm and a tonality and all this stuff to it. And the result is, an, is a new piece of music. The, the, the speaking over is like a soloist. Like one, one way to think of it also is like, like I play jazz piano and I think of it as like comping behind a soloist. Like the soloist is like the trumpet player or the, the person talking is like the trumpet player. And I'm trying to do things musically that complement that, you know, that support it and, and, and go with it and, and, and look for spaces that maybe where I could punctuate it in interesting ways. And, um, and sort of understanding how music can interact with speech in that way and, and emphasize certain points and um, make, make certain points more meaningful is really a uh, valuable skill to have. Like, for example, I, we did this story called Instruction Manual for Jason. And that one, at the very beginning, you, anytime you hear um, an excerpt from the instruction manual, you hear the same music. And the music comes to signify, okay, we're, we're reading from the manual now. And it's, all, it's always consistently that until 
at a certain point in the story, so the the main character is reading from the manual and she says, oh, I got to go to the other room and get something. So she puts the manual down on the bed and she walks out of the room but the music is still playing. And so we've been conditioned to associate that music with reading from the manual and it's 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 come to sim- symbolize the manual. And so what it's what it's sort of meant to evoke in you and the listener is is the idea that the manual is still there and it's still sitting there open so that when this other character comes into the room and finds the manual and starts reading from it it's all one continuous thing we're always with the manual and it, it sort of contextualizes what's going on and what it means to the characters and that was an instance where that i think was particularly effective at establishing that kind of vocabulary once settled Put Jason more at ease with certain familiar comforts, such as M&M's, Diet Sprite, Funyuns. Funyuns. I can do that. Time for a quick trip to the vending machine. Turns out the pool closed ten minutes ago, so it's... Jen? Put Jason more at ease. Jason has a deep-seated discomfort with refrigerator magnets. Cannot, under any circumstances, be convinced to close cabinets after... What is this book? Instruction manual for Jason. What the fuck? Warning. If Jason finds this book, book, he will not not like like it. it. No kidding. No kidding, he'll say. and likely throw it on the ground in fear. Holy sh... Jason, you're back. Uh, I mean, you, you've talked a lot about collaboration, too. I mean, here's my opinion about collaboration. that The best part of it is working with other people. The worst part of it is working with other people. What's that dynamic been like for you? I think it's like dating. Okay. Uh, like finding a good writer, like a, a collaborator, like particularly writers. Um, actors, it's not as 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 intense of a relationship as, as it is with writers so with writers it's like you could think they're a great writer but you just can't work together and, and sometimes oftentimes you don't know if you're going to work well together until you try doing it and when you find someone who you can work well together it feels like a really special thing because you've been looking so hard for someone and 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 failing so many times <laughs> at doing it that when you actually do find someone who you really feel like oh my god every time we work together it turns out good that's that's a really special thing so just like dating it's like you you just have to keep go keep doing it <laughs> keep trying until you find people who you can work with and i for me that's the perfect analogy because it's really about chemistry and and about just wanting to accomplish the same kinds of things having similar goals being able to see eye to eye like i think one person i i feel like really on the same page with creatively is Davy Gardner. Like whenever he gives me notes on things, they always make it better. I always 100% agree with with what he's saying. I just feel like his idea of what it needs to be and where we're going with it and what constitutes success is very aligned with my own. And so it makes it easy for us to get there. You talked a lot about like like improv. And I mean, I know for like actors, they've said that can be a more engaging experience if they're allowed to to improv. I mean, what, what's the balance there? I mean, I know, I mean, I know you're writing scripts. So there's not one way we've done it. 
It's evolved a lot over the years. So um, we've settled into a style where we will write a script first and then I'll have the actors perform it a few times and rehearse it. We'll get to know it. They'll do it. And, and as soon as I feel like we have a couple takes that are you know solid, the way it's written, then I'll I'll let the actors start to improvise. I'll say, you know, let's loosen it up this time. You don't have to stick so close to the script. Uh, it really listen to one another. Try to surprise the other person. I might say that, you know, and, and then and then I, I always end the sequence by recording a free take. So I say, okay, this is this is the last take. We're going to do this a free take. You can do whatever you want. Feel free to do it, something that you haven't tried yet. You know, give me something we don't have already. And so usually on the improv takes, you know, they'll listen a lot more because they're not sure what the other person's going to say. So it forces them to listen. And, and the performances are, from actors are always better when they're listening to one another and paying attention. Not, they're not thinking about like, oh, I have to say these words. They're thinking about, oh, I'm in this p- particular situation and I'm responding to this person and I'm communicating with this other person. And so you try to um, get them away from the linguistic aspects of the performance and to focus more on the sort of the um, the motivation when when we're when we talk you know we're not thinking about what words we're saying we're thinking about the ideas we're trying to express so you try to get the actors to be in that headspace where they're they're thinking more about the ideas but recordings are sort of the opposite of that where it's they're super articulate you can edit them as much as you want but they don't have that sort of life that improv have they don't have that sense of spontaneity to them and so I, I thought if I combined that the spontaneity of improv with the control of the recording studio I might get something really useful and great that maximized the potential of, of both of those things one of the ones you recommended for me to listen to was can you help me find my mom a little bit of a heart-wrenching piece in my opinion but um, why why did you recommend that to me well that's one of our most popular episodes everyone says it makes them cry which I think is pretty unusual to find something that actually genuinely makes you cry you know it's won a bunch of awards so i've I've been told that it's good (laughs) i I just think it's a very effective piece it uses the medium effectively it it has a premise that is audiophonic i guess you might say it's like you you can't see any because you can't see anything the piece works better hey there do i know you yeah you do how are you are you okay? I heard you had quite a day. What's happening? It's okay. Everything's gonna be okay. Hey, let's go on a walk. Do you wanna go on a walk? Where are we? We're in a place for people like you. What do you mean, people like me? You know, special people. People who don't know what they're capable of. Why don't they know what they're capable of? different reasons. You know, that's part of what we're trying to figure out. Hey, look, look, there's a piano in here. That's new. Have you played it yet? No. Why don't you give it a try? Keep going. Oh, you know what? Hold on. Hold on a second. I want to make a recording. Let's make a little music video. Okay. Okay. And action. 
That's a nice little camera you've got there. I really enjoyed one of your more recent ones, Heat Meat. For some reason, that reminded me of like an episode of Bob's Burgers or, or something. I don't know why. But uh, do you have any memories of, of making that? Hunter Nelson wrote that story. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Hunter is a really, really funny writer. And he's really great at world building. He's great at, like, he also wrote a story called Dan Slang, where he invented a language. And he invented, or he did this story called The Body Genius, where he invented all these, uh, this ho- sort of fake Hollywood lore, you know. We did a lot of fake trailers for that one. He just did this one called Still On that was a you know talk show. But he, he's really great at building these worlds. And so with Heat Meat, he built this world of a, of a hot sauce con- convention. And he sort of just sort of took a, a kind of an absurd conceit and played it in a really grounded way. That's what I love about that story. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, this has got a grip on me. Mm, this is really some sauce you got here, Victor. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, there's jalokia pepper in there and a scotch bonnet variant, plus vinegar and brown sugar just for tastiness. So I feel like it's a really Neil, good... you got to teach this kid to keep I, his mouth I, shut. I, I I'm sailing over oh. here and he's... Look, look, I, I believe in him, all right? Aaron, I, I was thinking, could he talk to Duncan... Duncan Bernard? So this is a sticker play. Interesting. Uh, you know what? Uh, I'm really sorry. Maybe, maybe I should just get back to my table. He's in breakout room E, doing his consultations. I'll tell him you're coming, but better make it count. He hates having his time wasted. Great. Great. Okay. Come on, Victor. Right. Uh, uh, thanks so much for trying, Vic and Susie. If you like us, spread the word. Attention. The representations of Sauce and Hollywood panel has been moved to subconference room C. And Dr. Reg Kenny Falois presents Paying the Piper, the digestion question has been moved to Deluxe Reception Hall 1. I think breakout room E's somewhere over here. Ow, 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 my eyes! My eyes! Oh my Is God, that guy okay? Ah, every year the same rumor breaks out that if you apply hot sauce directly to your eyeballs, you'll be able to see a secret race of angels who control probability. Believe it or not, there's a dark side to this stuff. They've also adapted other people's work. A story from 2014 called Sylvia's Blood was adapted from Philip K. Dick's short story called Upon This Dull Earth. A dark sci-fi type of thing. Was he an influential writer for you? Not particularly. No? You just like that one story, I guess? <laughs> I mean, I've seen a lot of mo- film adaptations of his work, which, okay. like, like a lot of us. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've obviously seen Blade Runner and I've seen this through a scanner darkly. I knew that he had written a lot of short stories that were in the public domain, and and we were we needed material. We had a you know an ongoing show that was always on that always needed to be writing new stories, and so that was one potential avenue to find a story that we wouldn't have to write. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I we looked through um, all of those stories that were available and and sort of settled on on that one because it felt like it had the most potential for audio it did like a lot of those stories that have fall, of his stories that have fallen to the public domain it wouldn't wouldn't work because they've already they they feel so old-fashioned now they like they've there have been so many movies and, and tv shows that use those same tropes it's all you know cold war stuff and, and so most of those stories just wouldn't wouldn't play today they just feel like 
thing, something you'd already heard before. Whereas the, this had some original stuff going on. Can, can you explain that a little bit more by what you mean when you say you, you saw that story and you knew it would, would work for audio? So in this story, I identified three set pieces that I felt I really wanted to, I could hear right away. Like when I, when I read this, read the sort of the, the when I read the story, um, and saw sort of thought through what this, all the scenes were, I'm like, oh, this is a great audio scene. So th- there's this one where they're walking through the woods and I thought, oh, I could go out to the woods. I could record it on location and we'll walk around, we'll do all this improv and, uh, that'll be fun. And then, um, I thought that, and, and so I thought right away, I thought this is a really cool location story to record. And then, um, I, there's a scene where he he talks to the angels and he talks to to Sylvia who's an angel and I thought oh the, I could have them sing like there's this whole there's this long dialogue in the short story of him going back and forth with these angels and I thought oh it'd be really interesting if I had voices doing this singing it and so I thought that was another really cool scene and then there's a third scene sequence where at the end she everyone turns into sylvia and so i thought well i can do that by just recording the same person and and, you know you can do that very easily with multi-tracking and so and that's something i thought would sound cool so it's like each of these sequences i thought would sound really interesting and be it work well in audio i'm back aren't i what the hell is going on? Where's my dad? I don't know what to do. I don't is know she what here? to do. This Rick, tell we're... me what's going on! I took off to find help. Could I go to the police? I mean, what are they going to do? Could I call a priest? Maybe a hospital. What if I'm hallucinating? I saw a car. I had to check, so I look in the passenger side window, and there's Sylvia. And then I look at the driver. Sylvia. Am I the only one seeing this? Because on Friday it's going to be another beautiful day with a high of 77 and a low of 52. Next, I'd like to play a selection from the uh, 1955 album, Gene Group and Meets Buddy Rick. Rick? Rick, where are you? Rick? Rick, help me! By the time I got home... Rick, I'm here. Where are you? Rick! Sylvia was everywhere. Rick! Rick, I'm back. Sylvia, I can't help I'm, you. I'm back. I'm not, I can't help you. Rick, Rick, Please, just go home. Please, no, no, it's not. Go home, please. All of you, just please go home. In October of 2012, Jonathan and his team produced a story called That's Democracy, which to date is one of their most popular episodes and was eventually turned into a short film. I think you've said you guys actually recorded that in in an actual classroom, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a friend of yeah. mine was um, a principal at a school, at a high school in, in the Bronx, and we recorded that in a classroom, yeah. Yeah, and so the premise of that, of course, is that there's this teacher, Mr. Moore, he's kind of at the end of his rope already, and could we even call it an experiment, or should we just call it like a nervous breakdown uh, with with his class? Well, yeah, I, he's not mentally 
stable. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, he, the idea was that he doesn't really have control over his class. His class doesn't respect him. And so he decides he's going to try to make them respect him, you know, by using this gun he has. It's a pretty powerful story. It's, it's, I don't want to spoil anything because, because I think not knowing what's going to happen is, is crucial to staying interested in the story and, 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 and it's, and have it having the effect, the desired effect Mr. you want. Mr. Moore, what are we voting for? It's a great question, Tammy. In fact, that's the first good question we've heard all day. What are we voting for? What's at stake? You are voting for a representative, somebody who's vested with the terrible responsibility of making a decision on behalf of all of you. Okay, well, what decision are they making? Who gets to live? Oh, that's fake. I mean, that one, that one was um, adapted into a short film. That's right. Yeah, it was. Yeah. What, what was it like to see an interpretation of your work in a different medium? It's okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's okay. I mean, it's, it's happened. I mean, we had a feature film made based on a story called Hellier Society starring Guy Pierce. That was thrilling. That was really thrilling because there's these words that Lewis had written that I'd heard a million times before. And here they are coming out of a, a another actor's mouth on a screen see it and somebody spent a lot of money on that that's great i don't know the, the, the stories are, are are complete as audio pieces i don't think they any of them need to be adapted it's their thing you know it's the person making its thing i'm happy that someone was creatively inspired by our work but i'm not as invested in it as i am the show would you ever uh, imagine that it would be that it would resonate with an audience the way it did no no not at all yeah i mean i think i hear people in creative work say that all the time like they're kind of shocked that like that one worked out and, and this one didn't. I don't know. That seems fascinating to me. Yeah. I have no explanation for that. I, th I think, um, I mean, I, I was working on it. I don't think anyone it. does, yeah. frankly. I, I, I was, uh, when I was finishing that piece, the last week before it went up or the week that it went up, I should say, I was in Australia and I still trying to finish this. I hadn't finished this piece because we were, I mean, it was crazy schedule in those days. I hadn't <laughs> like, eventually I got, into a nice rhythm where I, I like could live a normal life and still do the show. But in those days I was like, we were constantly recording things at a late, late into the process. And then I'd have like a week to put it all together. And anyway, I was still editing in Australia and I finally, I was like, I couldn't sleep because you know, there are like 14 hours difference or something like that. And so I would be editing all through the night. And one of the things I attended while I was there was a listening event where everyone, you know, we're in this theater and they play audio pieces for an audience. And that was the piece that they played. That was the first time I'd heard it after I made it was in front of this room theater full of people. And they loved it. It was like really, it was really electric. It was just the most exciting, one of the most exciting experiences I've had was being able to hear a, our piece right after it had been made in, in front of a full audience. And they, I just could tell they were on board. Wow. I th always think that's the, to me, just like personally is like the hard thing about making audio is because, you know, you don't really get that real time feedback versus if like you're a stage actor or if you're, you know, like performing music, uh, you know, a lot of times you get that energy from the crowd. Uh, you know, a lot of times like 
for me anyway, a lot of times making audio, at least the post-production side of it, it's kind of very lonely. It's just like me by myself being like, well, I hope, I hope this works. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I have, um, I have the, the writer and, um, our associate producer are sort of my, um, my brain trust in the post-production stages. So I always send drafts to both of them and hopefully that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, a lot of us are just trying to entertain ourselves. At least my my theory is, is like, I'm not very unique and I've got pretty simple tastes uh, creatively. So it's like, if I like it, eh, hopefully other people do too. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I've always thought of the um, audience as being an aspect of myself just because that's the only thing I can really know. I can't really guess what another person will like or how, how deeply they feel something. I can only judge that for myself. And so my strategy has always been to just trust myself, be honest to myself. That's the hardest part is being honest, honest to yourself about what you, whether you like something or not, because you can talk yourself into liking something if you don't want to have to change it and be careful not to do that because that's, that's like, it's dangerous. <laughs> so just be on or have somebody who can be honest to you about whether something works someone who who's who knows what you're trying to do and whose opinions you respect and you you understand where they're coming from so you know how to sort of interpret what they're saying to you i think that's really really important but yeah it's 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 really hard it's hard it's it's hard to gauge that kind of thing as you're doing it do you feel like every episode you do is revealing some kind of truth i think that's what fiction does yeah we ha- we don't set out like what's the truth going to be this time guys <laughs> we don't we don't do that <laughs> but yeah i mean i i think um things you you know it's right when it feels true uh, and not literally true but i mean true to the human experience it's it's expressing something we've all experienced somehow you know and so oftentimes fiction does that by you know putting things in completely unreal circumstances like science fiction or something but you know science fiction is always about our contemporary life so the fiction in general is like that. You know, it might look like it's about something fantastical, but it's really about just the things we deal with every day. For now, the truth is on hold and the future is uncertain. But after some 11 years, hundreds of stories and multiple awards to show for it, I feel confident in saying that Jonathan and his collaborators have shown us all that Ralph Waldo Emerson was right. Fiction does reveal truth. You can find full episodes of The Truth at thetruthpodcast.com or anywhere they have podcasts. And now it's time for our podcasting tip, where our guests share some wisdom with us. I think the natural default mode for shows is to be mediocre. And you have to really work to make something great. And um, it takes a, it takes real discipline. And I think that's what we should all be striving for, is to make something that's great and not mediocre that's what I would encourage is for people to really see it as something they could take seriously and 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 turn into a real art form and treat it with uh, respect and um, not something that's easy or cheap but rather something that's expressive and with depth and beautiful audience is a castos original series our founder and executive producer is Craig Hewitt. Production assistance is provided by Isel Brill, Jocelyn DeVore, and Marnie Hills. Our website and logo design is courtesy of Francois Brill, our head of product here at Castos. This episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by me. I'm Stuart Barefoot. All music comes from the Storyblocks Library. 
All previous episodes can be streamed anywhere you listen to podcasts and online at audiencepodcast.fm. Next time on Audience, I chat with Jenna Flanagan from the podcast After Broaded Market about reporting on complicated stories with more nuance. One of the things that I kept saying when we started this project was that even though it is going to take, I mean, it, it does take place in Newark, New Jersey, this could be any inner city Black community across America, really. A lot of the same pathologies and systems of oppression, et cetera, exist from coast to coast.